Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hold the Line and Happy Holidays. I'm going to talk a little bit in this episode about some questions that have come up as a result of the workshop that I ran for the Fenzi Academy, which, by the way, you can still purchase until the 31st of December if you want to catch it. Now, one of the questions that came up from several different people is a question that often comes up, regardless of what it is that I'm covering in terms of what behavior it is that I'm 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 teaching people how to train, and the question is. Something like, how do I achieve this in the presence of game? How do I achieve this in the presence of a really strong environmental distractor like a bunny or a bird? And that is what people want to know. It's as if, you know, you can kind of understand why, can't you? Because we do, let's talk about the sit, for example. Everybody can train their dog to sit at home in the living room. You don't get people marveling at that. <laughs> and yet, when a bunny gets up and a dog sits, then we know that that is impressive. If they don't try to chase and they're very steady, that is that is something that a lot of people want to achieve and can't. And yet the behavior is the same. It's still the sit. So the question becomes, how do we do this? How are we, how are we achieving this response in, in the presence of something that the dog really would like to chase and get in their mouth? <laughs> The first thing to talk about is something that you need to get in place way, way, way before you actually want to use it. And that is your, what I call alternative reinforcer. So point number one, you need to develop an alternative reinforcer and you need to develop it early, way before you actually need it. Ideally in puppyhood, because when puppies are little, they're learning about what is reinforcing in the world, what is fun. If you don't really play with your puppy very much, and I see this quite a lot in clients coming to me, you know, uh, general pet training classes, that people sort of stop playing with their puppy. They kind of play when the pup is really small and when everyone is really enthusiastic about having a new puppy in the household. And often there's a lot of sort of tuggy play and stuff like that at that point. And then it tends to just drop out and fade away and people kind of stop playing with the dog. Often it's combined with increasing amounts of dog-dog play, which can create issues of its own. But it's important that you are developing this alternative reinforcer because it's something that you need to kind of be growing in the dog. You need to be thinking about it as a little fire, which you're kind of fanning the flames of and nurturing, as it were. And if you kind of forget about this completely until you actually want to use it when you introduce game, then 
your dog may not value it. So if you have never really used a flirt pole with your dog and one day decide, right, let's go and introduce my dog to, um, I don't know, a bird and a launcher or something. I'm going to take along my flirt pole to reinforce my dog on their study. Then you produce the flirt pole and the dog's like, what, what is that? What am I supposed to do with that? I don't want that. I want the bird. And the dog just doesn't really, isn't able to get into the flirt pole in that situation, in that context. So you need to kind of be introducing this way back when your puppy is little and kind of your goal is to get them addicted to to play of some description. Now, I tend to find the best thing is tuggy slash flirt pole. And the reason for that is it's kind of interactive play. It's you and the dog playing together. And whilst there is a an item involved, there is a, a tuggy or a flirt pole, there is a third thing. It's not just you and the dog. That thing tends to remain under your control because you keep hold of it while you're playing. When you get to a situation where you're using balls and you're throwing a ball for the dog, well, there's lots of lots of ways that can go a little bit awry. Like you may throw the ball and the dog may chase the ball, but then a dog may decide, right, I'm not going to pick the ball up. I'm just going to go off now and hunt by myself and do my own thing and seek out environmental reinforcers. And so it's a little harder for you to retain control of the dog. So if you do have a dog who values balls, maybe try and get a ball on a string and try and move it across into something that you can keep hold of during the game. That's going to make it a bit easier for you to use as a reinforcer. But there are people who successfully use balls that you throw um, and that does work for some people. So if you want some more information about how to be nurturing this and how to be developing this love of toys in your puppy, then you want to be taking my steady course, which is on my site, because that's completely what that is focusing on. It's also training your your young dog to be steady in the presence of something that they want and how to earn access to that thing that they want. So I highly recommend that course, but and the kind of byproduct of that course, which is happening all the time, almost without us thinking about it, is that the dog is developing a love of the flirt pole, which is what we're using on that course. When you get out and about with your dog, you can use a smaller and more portable flirt pole than we use on the course. So um, there, there is a much smaller, shorter flirt pole that's available. And some dogs are able to transfer across onto a tuggy, particularly a chaser tuggy with a long string attached to it. Some dogs will, will happily transfer across to that. Other dogs prefer to have a flirt pole and they just don't relate to the, the chaser tug in the same way. So it just depends on your particular dog. And finally, I would say there are some dogs who just don't value toys. Like you spend a long time trying to develop their interest in the toy and either they're just a little bit interested indoors and they have absolutely zero interest outside and you just feel like you're wading through mud and it starts to feel really difficult <laughs> um, and you just can't get the dog into the toy. There are dogs like that. But before you conclude that you have a dog like that, you really need to invest some time in trying to get the dog to to love toys in the first place. And sometimes it's something that if you leave it for a little while, you come back to it a few weeks later, that there's this renewed interest. And sometimes if you make sure that you are choosing a toy, which is something that they really like, which for gun dogs, it's usually something soft, something fluffy or fleecy, something, um, you know, sheepskin. Um, it's going to be, it's not going to be something hard frequently when it comes to playing tug. So you don't want to use like hard rope tugs and tugs which are designed for dogs doing bite sports, for example. A lot of gun dogs will just not want to bite on those because they've been bred to have soft mouths and they just don't find it very comfortable to play with those kinds of items. So something soft and fluffy is going to be much more preferable for your gun dog. So that was the first thing. Develop, get your reinforcers 
working because I want you to be thinking ahead here and thinking about the situation when you and your young dog go out to the field to deliberately encounter game for the first time. So maybe, um, I don't know, you might be going to a rabbit pen, you might be, you might have some birds in a launchers that you've set out, but you know you're going out there to confront game somehow and you are going out there with the objective and the goal of helping your dog learn how to behave in the presence of game, which for, may vary depending on the subgroup of dog, gun dog you have and what your desired behaviours are. But you're going out there to try and achieve the, the your response to cues in the presence of game. And the last thing you want is you get out there and you start to work on the game and you offer your dog the thing that you expected to be the reinforcer, whether it is the flirt pole or whether it is food, whatever it is. And your dog is like, nah, I don't want that thing. I'm not interested to take that food off my nose to you know, stop waving that thing about. I want the bunny or I want that bird. I don't want your reinforcer. Now, if you find yourself in that situation, you've got to have a bit of a rethink about things <laughs> because you need to have a reinforcer that functions as a reinforcer. Otherwise, it's not a reinforcer in the presence of game. And that is the thing that you have to be having in your mind from the very beginning what what do I think I want to use with this dog in the future when we get onto game? What do I think this dog is going to find valuable in the presence of game? How can I develop value in reinforcers that I can take into the presence of game later? So this is the first thing that I want to say when it comes to making things real, as it were. And this is not about how to specifically train anything. It's about the value of investing time in thinking about it ahead of when you actually need it. So number two you would then work on getting your remote stop or your stop behavior, whatever it is that you want to be happening at a distance. So whether you want a sit on your whistle, for example, or whether you want your dog to whoa on a verbal cue, whatever it is that you want to be happening, you want to make sure that you've got distance. You've got your dog being able to do this at a distance. And that is the aspect of this, which we look at on my um my course, uh, my workshop that I just did for Fenzie. So the remote stop workshop. And here's a little bit of a hint. In a few weeks time, there will be a course available on my site called the remote stop. And that's going to be a deeper dive into this behavior. That's a little bit of a heads up there. So yeah, so that's going to be helping you develop this behavior at a distance so that your dog, no matter what they're doing, how much they're moving, when you give the cue, will go into that position. That's number two. Number three, you want to get this behavior that you want, whether it is the sit or the stand working when the dog is absorbed smelling something. So this is very um, challenging for a lot of dogs, confusingly. So sometimes I think as humans, we believe that it's going to be harder for the dog to stop when they're running around at 100 miles an hour and we give our cue than it is for the dog to, to be able to stop when they're smelling something. Because on the face of things, it seems easier for the dog to stop when they're pretty still already than it does when they're running really fast. But actually, for a lot of gun dogs, it's much harder for them to withdraw their attention from something that they're sniffing and to respond to our cue than it is for them just to come screeching to a halt out of running. And the reason for that is a, a, a dog's brain has a massive amount of it devoted to um, olfactory stimuli and processing of olfactory stimuli. And this is very... Um, reinforcing for the dog and it just really absorbs them. So it's really difficult for a dog to be able to sort of disengage your attention from that interesting olfactory stimuli and to turn their attention to us and our cue. 
our oral cue. That's a cue they've heard. So this is not about your dog being disobedient or willfully um, ignoring you, which I think is what people often often experience it as, because it's what it looks like. You're there giving the dog a cue and the dog's giving absolutely zero response of having heard you or maybe a little flick of the ear or something. But, you know, they are not really making an effort to begin to respond to you. So it's not that the dog is is being disobedient or ignoring you. It's just that it's really difficult because their brain, the part of their brain de- devoted to scent is so huge and it's just taking over all of their attention at this moment. But this is something that we can teach the dog through repetition. So through repeatedly associating our cue with the behavior that we want, eventually we'll give our cue and the dog will do the behavior. It's just that we are going to have to help the dog out for a little bit longer in terms of stepping in with our food lure, putting the food on the dog's nose, luring the dog into the position, giving the dog multiple treats. So for this phase of things, we are not going to be at a distance from the dog because we need to be right up close so that we can intervene when the dog ignores us. So ideally we'd have the dog on a long line, the dog was sniffing away, just a couple of meters away, and we're holding the long line slack. And we give our cue and if the dog doesn't respond, we go up to the dog, we put the food in their nose, we lure them into the position, whichever it is we want, and we give them multiple treats in position. And then we release the dog to go sniff again before the dog has released themselves. So why do we want to do this? Why do we want to release the dog before they've released themselves? Well, this all becomes a beautiful kind of cycle of reinforcement if we can do it in this way. So what happens is the dog learns that the quicker they respond to our cue, whether it's a woe or whether it's a whistle, sit, whatever it is, the quicker the dog goes into that position and um, we approach, we reinforce, the quicker they get released back to sniffing. So if what they really want to do is sniff and not be interrupted from sniffing, the best way for them to have continued access to whatever it is they want to smell is to just do, do the position, get reinforced by us, and then also get the double reinforcement, as it were, of getting released back to sniffing again. So... That's why we want to make sure that we stay in control of when the release happens, because that way it's going to function as a reinforcer for the dog performing the behavior that we asked. So it's um, it's kind of an interesting one. It's a little bit like the give me a break game. In fact, it's kind of evolved. The ghost, the ghost sniff exercise has evolved from for me from the give me a break game from control unleashed and i also use it for heel works if you've taken the heel course you might be a bit familiar with go sniff so go sniff is the same idea it's just that the work that we're asking for from the dog in this exercise is the remote sit instead of or sorry the remote stop if you want to woe um, instead of heel but the principle of the exercise is exactly the same apart from that so Let's assume that we've developed alternative reinforcer, which is number one. We have achieved a remote stop at a distance, which is number two. We have achieved a reasonable remote stop out of sniffing. The dog's able to respond out of sniffing. That's number three. So the first, the next place where I begin to really use the remote stop in the context of the dog performing another behavior would be the T drill. And this is a drill, which is a handling drill. It's a casting drill, which is usually used for retrievers, but if you want a dog to handle whatever subgroup they are, whether a HPR or versatile dog, whether they are a spaniel, whatever whatever subgroup of dog of gun dog you have, you're going to need the T drill if you want your dog to handle. Which, by the way, you may not if you are, for example, in North America with a versatile dog, you may not want your dog to be able to take casts and to be able to handle left, right, and back. But if you do want your dog to be able to do that, then you're going to want the T drill. 
Um, before doing the T-drill, you need first to have trained three-handed casting, which is where we, we sort of take out the dog running from your side to the pole. So I should basically explain what the T-drill is really, shouldn't I? Because there might be some people listening who don't understand. So to describe the T-drill, I want you to imagine a plus sign. Um, so, or you can imagine a crucifix. So basically that is the shape I want you to have in your head. So you and the dog are standing at, um, six o'clock, let's say on that, um, on the plus sign and <laughs> the back pole is at 12 o'clock and the right pole is at three o'clock and the left pole is at nine o'clock. And for 300 casting, each time you'll sit the dog in the middle. So where, where, where all these four paths join up in the middle, that's where you will sit the dog. And then you will walk out to your six o'clock position and you will just practice each of your casts, your left cast, your right cast, your back left cast, your back right cast, until all of those casts by themselves are functioning really, really well. So the dog is able to take your cast, understand which pole they should run to, to get the retrieve. And by the way, you can also do this with food at the poles. If your dog doesn't have strong retrieving drive to do multiple reps, you can also do this with food. Um, so let's say you've done that. You've done your 300 casting. Your dog can take all those individual casts. You've also trained your dog to run from your side straight to the back pole. So that's from the six o'clock pole straight to the 12 o'clock pole. And the dog's able to do that as well. And not to just veer off to the left and right poles, which may be closer from their perspective. So if you want to know how to do that, by the way, you want to take my blind blind course, my blind retrieves course, which involves teaching a dog how to run to fence posts and how to perceive them as um, reinforcing locations. And it's kind of the bedrock of of everything that we do afterwards when it comes to um, handling and casting drills. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. All right, so we've got the dog running from our side straight to the back post at this point. And this is where we start to introduce the stop, the remote stop. So we sit the dog at our side, we line them up as if they're going to that back post, which they're familiar with doing. We send them and when they reach that middle point, 
the point where they, we usually sit them and walk away and cast them left, right or back when we're doing three-handed casting, that's when we blow our sit whistle. We stop the dog in the middle and then we're going to cast them left or right or back to um, one of the poles. So it then at that point becomes the familiar three-handed casting exercise, which they know already. So we're kind of just kind of combining these two different exercises to make the T-drill. And this is kind of this, the very start of being stopped on the whistle and taking a cast. So that's where we begin to use our remote stop in the presence of something distracting because most dogs, if they have a strong retrieve drive, really want to go get the bumper. And so we're kind of stopping them in the presence of a reinforcer out there in the environment. And if you know they, they maybe don't have a strong retrieving drive and you've put food out there, well, there's they know that there's food out there because in three-handed casting, you've been using the food. So they do have to respond to you in the presence of something that they want, which is out there in the environment. So this is a good next stage. And then kind of at the same time or um, a little bit after, we can also begin to get our remote stop working on the bolting rabbit, which is, um, I understand it's something which people are not very familiar with in North America, but it is like this um, dummy, which often is covered with rabbit fur and it's stretched on a piece of very thick, heavyweight elastic between two screw down pegs. So and it can, you know, stretch some distance, so uh, many meters across a field. So you kind of have the string and you pull the string as the dog approaches the bolting rabbit. Or if you have a helper, they can pull the string and it simulates a rabbit which has been flushed by your approach and the dog is going to be steady to that. So you can use this in different ways depending on the dog that you have. If you've got a retriever, you might be pretending that you're walking up with the dog at heel and that's where the rabbit has has flushed. Uh, if you've got a, a HBR breed, a versatile dog, a spaniel, you might have the dog on a long line and be simulating them feeling sort of free in front of you as if they were hunting and just practicing the dog being steady in that context. So you're going to use it in a slightly different way depending on what dog you have, but it still gives you an opportunity to um, proof this behavior. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to using the bolting rabbit. Disadvantages, after one rep, the, dogs get, the dog gets very wise to, that this is a setup, but that doesn't mean that it completely uses, loses its value because it still is a very exciting thing moving quickly across the floor, even if the dog is expecting it. <laughs> so it still gives you an opportunity to practice steadiness to something moving very quickly. And if you set it up in a different place for each session you have, it becomes the first rep of each session becomes a fresh rep. So yeah, bolting rabbit. And then we've also got launchers. We can put some birds in launchers and we can, again, use those in different ways, dependent on the, the dog that we have. It can be most useful when it comes to uh, pointing breeds or spaniels. So we can simulate the dog um, on a long line, hunting up and practice um, the dog being steady to the flush of the birds. With pointing breeds, there's also some pointing stuff to talk about with that, which I won't go into right now, but just be aware that it's there. Um, and there are also other things that can simulate games. So, for example, you can have a couple of furry uh, tennis balls covered in rabbit fur in your pocket. And when you're out hunting your dog, you can just um, whip one of those in front of your dog so quickly that they can't even see what it is. So you just practice something. Something appears really quickly and runs. And we want the dog's response to that to be to go into that sit. Or, if, whoa, if you've got a, a dog, you don't want to sit. Um, so... You're just kind of surprising your dog with things at that point and continually producing 
stuff so that you're, you want your dog's response to be that they're going to go into your desired position, not that they're going to try to chase. So you just want to keep rehearsing this until it becomes almost second nature that something unexpected happens and they go into their position instead of chasing. So so these are the kind of stages that I would go through. And I hope that this kind of demystifies things a little bit because what often happens is I start people out and show them how to begin a behavior, but people find it very difficult to imagine how that behavior can actually work in the situation where they eventually want it to work, like under the under extreme distractions. So to re to kind of recapture my, my sort of five main points here. So firstly you want to make sure you're developing a really strong alternative reinforcer, preferably from a young age, and that you're constantly keeping an eye on how your dog is doing when it comes to food motivation and toy motivation as it were so how much they're really into either of those things and which of those things you plan to use in what ways later on when you get onto game for that particular dog number two distance then it's about getting the behavior that you want to occur when your dog is at a distance from you and that's what my um remote stop workshop is about then we've got number three the behavior happening out of sniffing which is slightly challenging and different for a dog than it is when you when we stop the dog when they're kind of free and running around. Then we want to get the behavior number four in the context of the T drill. At least if you want a dog to handle, you want to get it in the context of the T drill. If you've got a dog that you don't want to handle or take any casts, then you're probably not going to do that one. And then number five, we're going to be using various different things that simulate game or that are game, but a game in a way that we can control. So it might be bolting rabbit, might be birds in launchers, it might be a rabbit pen, it might be um, balls and furry things that we're throwing across the dog's path when we're out. But we're trying to make things increasingly more realistic and trying to proof our position to the appearance of those things. I do want to stress that it's important as far as possible at this stage to stay in control of the appearance of the thing. And that's why all of these things are things that we set up and we're in control of. So the bolting rabbit is something we know exactly when it's going to release because the string is pulled. And either we we ask our helper to pull that by raising our hand in the air behind the dog so they can't see, um, or we pull it ourselves. Launchers, again, these are triggered by either someone pulling a string if they're a manual launcher or pressing a button if they're a remote launcher, or balls that we have thrown and we're choosing the moment to throw them, or a rabbit pen that we go into knowing full well that it's got rabbits in there. And we're going in there with our dog on a long line, prepared and ready to meet those rabbits. So in all these situations, we're trying to set things up that happen in a controlled way where we are prepared for the thing to happen so that we can implement prevention because we know it's going to happen. What we don't want is that we just go exercising the dog in across land where we know there is game and we haven't we don't know when the game's going to appear we don't know what it's going to be and it's likely to surprise us and to surprise the dog and then stuff's going to happen which we don't want to happen like as in chasing or um behaviors going to be learned that we don't want the dog to learn and that can be really difficult for us to to sort of teach the dog to do something different in the future that makes sense because they're very self-reinforcing chasing is very self-reinforcing so i hope that this helps people kind of understand and by the way it's difficult because when we're working in a natural environment and with game it is you know we're not in control like we can try and and control everything as much as possible but ultimately we still will be surprised occasionally by something appearing when we don't expect it to and we will still be 
um, taken aback by that. But the, the point is to try to reduce the occasions when that happens as far as possible and to try to control the occasions that we can control <laughs> as much as possible. So, so that is our goal. And the more things that we have in place to enable us to do that, the better. So that is why things like having your own pigeons, having your own quail, having your own rabbit pen or having access to a rabbit pen, all these things are just really, really valuable when it comes to training a dog and actually pretty essential. So I kind of encourage people to think about, about, you know, how much they can have under their own control. And I would sort of add that I think sometimes people think because they live in a city or they live in an urban place that they can't do some of these things. And that's not necessarily the case. So when we lived in a city, we had a little rabbit hutch on our patio <laughs> and we had some quail in there. So you don't need a large space to to keep quail or pigeon. Um, so kind of look into that a little bit and think about whether it is possible for you to um, maybe have some birds that you can control things a little bit more. But that's a whole other subject as well. So I hope that this has helped a bit and given people some ideas to think about when it comes to making things more real. And I hope it's helped to demystify this a little bit. Hold the line. All right, that's all for this week, everyone. Happy holidays. Stay safe, stay warm, and I'll see you in 2022. Ding <laughs> <laughs>